1: Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Veterans Day to all of the, you who have served and to all of you who um, worked at home so your loved one could serve. Um, we want to send out our best wishes and our gratitude. I would like to acknowledge the passing of a very dear friend of our profession and um, a man who left an indelible mark um on all of us uh david powell who is a veteran he was served in the u.s Navy, and he was the i guess the grandfather of supervision for addiction professionals his book is used around the world and it's used in testing and certification and david died very suddenly on november 1st and he his loss is a tremendous one for all of us and i um you know, I just want to acknowledge that uh, he was a good friend to many people, and he was a pioneer in our profession, and he will be greatly missed and irreplaceable. Um, I want to also introduce our guest today, uh, Raymond Tomasi, who is the president and CEO of Gosnold. Uh, Ray's been at Gosnold since 1972, where, and he served in a number of clinical and administrative positions positions, including addiction counselor, director of counseling services, program director, and vice president. He was named the president CEO in 1992. He oversees the Gosnell inpatient residential and outpatient programs that compromise the CAPE's largest behavioral health treatment organization. And for those of you who are not in New England, the CAPE is Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um, Mr. Tomasi is on the board of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives, the Network for Improvement of Addiction Treatment, Cape Cod Hospital Board of Incorporators, and the Association for Behavioral Health. Before joining Gosnell, Mr. Tomasi worked in the private sector for seven years in the greater New York area. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from Rutgers University and has a Master's in Education with a concentration in Counseling and healthcare. Care. Wow. Uh, well, hello. Well, welcome, Ray.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Mary. That's quite a uh, a, a long list of uh, sort of unnecessary things <laughs> about me, but thanks very much. Yeah.
2: Well, you're welcome. You know, um, I'd like to share with our listeners that actually Ray and I met on a trip to Vietnam, and um, considering that today's special day, I think there's some... Uh, energy there with that, and one of the things that I think that we realized that the folks in Vietnam certainly moved well beyond the war better than most of us did. So um, welcome, Ray. I know Gosnell has been a pioneer in a lot of creative um, ideas in our profession, and you have been doing integration with primary care for quite a while, and you're also... In doing things to improve patient outcomes with um, extensive care, so hopefully you'll be able to enlighten us on all of that.
3: Well, yeah, Mary. Actually, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you about this. I think it's an important, you know, important issue for all of us in the field. And I think, to some degree, the field has taken a legitimate hit over the years for sort of being locked into what we refer to as episodic. Types of care: a person comes to a program and leaves the program, and hopefully they make it to the next base. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But it is—it has been a concern of ours for some time that that uh, we find better ways to stay connected to our patients. I mean, about three or four years ago, we started to change the language we use in talking about addiction. Uh, and I learned it primarily from some education and training that I started to do with medical staffs and hospitals when we began to do some of the integration work and we use we've historically used a language that healthcare generally doesn't really relate to and understand but in the process of that we started talking about <clears throat> outcomes because that's the knock the docs would say well come on Ray you know the, the patients don't do well they don't really want to come to Gosnell they only come because they have to and of course, they're easily, those are easy to retort to, but the business of what really constitutes a successful outcome has been a challenge for us in the field. So we began, you know, recognizing that addiction is a chronic condition. We started to use terms like the, the terms that are generally used and talking about those kind of illnesses. And so we said, well, our, our objectives are really to extend periods of remission to reduce periods of acuity and to improve functioning during those periods of remission. And then I'd always add on the tagline, just as you do, doctor, in treating other kinds of chronic conditions. And that terminology began to resonate with them. And so as we started to talk about that, it, it almost organically led to a discussion about, well, how do we improve and extend periods of remission because we see patients, we have a far, fairly robust continuum of care here with, from acute care all the way through different levels of what we would now refer to as subacute, uh, longer-term care, and sort of the, the equivalent of assisted living with assisted sober living, and then on to outpatient services, whether they're day or evening programs, IOPs, that sort of thing. So we have the continuum that enables us to stay connected, the folks for the for the life of their recovery, we use that as a tagline, actually. But but what we were seeing were very kind of sporadic connections to those next those next levels, and this, so this became more of, of more interest to us. And then we began using a little mobile technology. You know, we're in the project that was developed by the University of Wisconsin folks. They call it the HS project to use smartphone. apps on smartphones stay connected to patients after they leave a particular level of service, if they theoretically get discharged, although in a sense with a chronic condition you never really get discharged. And we began to see that the connections that we were having with them through the smartphone were Doing a couple of things. Number one, they were staying, patients were staying connected to us, so we were able to see how they were doing. It, it led to the creation of much stronger alumni networks, and people seem to be doing a little bit better. So we, we pushed it a little bit further, particularly targeting a demographic group. We, as many other programs across the country are finding, the the surge in admission of the 18 to 28-year-old demo and primarily addicted to uh, opiate uh, drugs. So we decided that we would uh, target that population and then use a variety of interventions to stay with them. And so we initiated a recovery coaching program. So in addition to the mobile technology now, we wanted to put people out into the field working directly with patients after they left one of our residential or inpatient programs, combining that with some medication-assisted treatment, working with families, and seeing if that made a difference. And so what we've been doing for the last year, really, is developing and advancing that concept that, that keeps us connected. And here's an interesting little thing. Before we did this, we did a little pilot, <clears throat> pilot study. And then we did a a little sampling of patients in our, in one of our programs. We looked at 75 patients over a three month, two or three month, two month period I think it was. And we looked to see how they did in the program that they were treated in. And interestingly, more than 90% of the patients came across positively in three areas. They complete, successfully completed that level of care. They identified, this is in the 18 to twenty-eight year old demographic, they identified a significant supportive person in their lives who wanted to help them in their recovery. And they said yes to a continuing care referral. In other words, yes, i will go to the next place, whether it was a day program, evening, whatever it was, partial program. Then we looked at them about two, we follow them every week, So despite those very high numbers of completion, support, and compliance intent, 18% had resumed use within two weeks. And so we had sort of, that's a pretty significant number, and we said we we need to do a little bit more because the well-intended patient is not doing well. And so we initiated this service that put recovery coaches in the field, signed all the patients up for the smartphone app on their smartphone and enrolled many of them in the medication assisted program, primarily Vivitrol. We are we are a very uh high provider of Vivitrol service. We have, I don't know, maybe two or three hundred, maybe more of patients on Vivitrol. We like the antagonistic medication a little bit more than the partial agonist. So and then involve engaging families or support of other people in the process also. So we now we have about we've had about in the last and then we went out because these are not services that are typically funded through the reimbursement stream um that we that we we're presently contracted in. So we went out and we found some folks who were interested in what we were doing, provided some what we call R and D funds to get the service going. So we've about fifty who have been through this or going through this additional program to stay connected with them. And we're, we're seeing that it's making a difference. We're seeing a difference even in the patients that have regression or resum- resumption of use. We've had of the 50 or so patients that have been enrolled so far, we've had about eight or nine regressions in the last, the things started officially about seven months ago. We had some patients in it before that, but the funding we got helped us launch it more aggressively. The average length of a regression for the eight or nine patients that have resumed use is less than 72 hours because we know what's happened to them and we've been able to reengage them, bring them back, sort of modify their care plan and move on from there. So I, I don't, you know, we'll see what, what this will be like a year from now. But we're very encouraged so far. We've got to find better ways to stay connected to people. And with the mobile technology, we have some clues as to where they are going. Because the mobile technology asks them for a, they're, they're queued to do a weekly survey where they've got a seven point scale where they, uh, rate their condition in a number of areas uh, risk for well I guess they call it risk for relapse but it's exposure to high risk situations my 12-step meeting attendance, have I, have I been going to my counselor, am I sleeping okay, what are my relationships like? And So we have this um, arrangement through University of Wisconsin the data all gets fed back to them and then we've set thresholds that says if a patient if the patient rates um a uh, self a three or less in any area, then we wanna know. And so we get an email. Our coordinator who does this gets an email from the University of Wisconsin that says, you know, Mary Woods is, has has uh, done her survey and her twelve step attendance is at a three and her concern about high risk situations is at a eight. See, that would be a high number actually. Uh and then our folks reach out to them, call them. So some of them have coaches, some of them are sort of phasing out of the coaching, but we've got continual contact with them. I, I think it makes a difference. So we're, we're beginning to think about doing this where we have a few sort of beyond the 28 year old uh, folks who are in this also. So, uh, it's a very, very interesting, uh, project and I think it's going to have uh, we have some research going on behind it which I can tell you about also
2: well it's going to be a brave new world and we'll be right back after this commercial talk more with Ray
4: you're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
0: tune in every monday at 2 p.m pacific time and 5 p.m eastern time on the voice america health and wellness channel for eat well to live well with kelly hill kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill.
3: Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice
1: America Health and Wellness.
2: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Mr. Raymond Tomasi, who is the president and CEO at Galsnold, which is on Cape Cod, beautiful Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And we're talking about extended care engagement and how to improve patient outcomes. Um, Ray, before we go back into the technology, could you just explain explain to your audience um, what Bizitrol is and why you use it again?
3: Sure, sure. Well, Vivitrol is a is a brand name for a drug called Naltrexone, which is a, a drug that that blocks the opiate receptors in the brain, and essentially, it's used to to dull or craving craving for opiate drugs. And so, what I mean, the the greatest risk that people have, particularly in the early days of recovery, is that the craving is so intense, and in they uh, with opiate drugs that it's very very difficult to stay. To stay clean and sober, and so anything that you can do to blunt the craving um, is helpful. And, and it, you know, it's like any other medication in the sense that it works well, very well for some people. It works okay for others, and for some, it doesn't seem to have as significant an effect. I I was talking to a patient the other day. Uh, about his continuing care plan and I I said, are you on Vivitrol? Are you on the medication? And it's not an opiate medication. There's no uh, withdrawal or no real significant side effects from it. He said, yeah, I'm on the medication. I said, is it helping? He said, yeah, it is helping. He said, you know, I I have thoughts about using, but the thing that's different this time is that I don't have the impulse to act on those thoughts immediately. I, I think... It's very hard for folks to understand the incredible compulsion to continue to use. And so it drives, it drives patients to do things that are unheard of, you know, like cleaning out their family checkbook or stealing their grandmother's heirloom jewels. But the power of the craving and the power of the compulsion is so strong that it it certainly overcomes any rational thinking. So Vivitrol, uh, as a drug that that sort of covers those opiate receptors in the brain and you you wouldn't you know you don't feel the effects of a, an opiate drug if you take it when you're using vivitrol so it's another tool and it's for us it's in this particular special program that we're doing for young adult opiate dependent patients it's one of six or seven things on the list it's the traditional we don't give the medication in the absence of traditional counseling services group group therapy or individual counseling it's not a it's not that panacea that doesn't require it's medication assisted treatment i think that's the key it it assists some of the other more uh, traditional clinical interventions that we've been doing so we use it in combination with that and the uh, smartphone technology the personalized recovery coaching, the family coaching, there's testing, there's drug testing with the use of any medication, but with Vivitrol, uh, we, we test the individuals to make sure that their, their uh, tests are negative, and if they're not, then it allows us to do another intervention. I think it's important to know that it's very, very unusual for a person to come to a treatment experience and then stay in remission for the rest of their lives and never, never resume use again. And so, it's a very disturbing thing for families and loved ones to to have to experience. And uh, you know, it brings back all of the the anxiety and the fear and the confusion that is associated with active use. But this is these are tools that we're using to try to make that period of remission much more effective. And what we found. Because we met with our coaches, we met with our recovery coaches and we said, Okay, you guys have been doing this. We have four I think maybe now five actually. Uh what do, what, do, what are we doing that's good? What are we doing? What could we what more could we be doing? And the unanimous sense was we said, Well, you know, we're helping these folks get to treatment, we're helping them get to the medication appointment, we're getting them appointments with primary care docs so they can get, you know There are other medical or physical issues addressed. We're helping them either think about going back to school or getting jobs. We're getting them to 12-step meetings. But they don't have any idea of how to have a a leisure time. So we're just doing all of these therapeutic or quasi-therapeutic things. But we've got to be able to do something more because life is more than just going to counseling and going to Twelve-step uh, meetings, and so we've added another element to this service, which actually has us creating opportunities for them to find clean and sol- sober alternatives in leisure time. So, recreationally, culturally, we just took um, we we took ten patients the other night to uh, we worked out a deal with a local symphony orchestra. They gave us ten free tickets. And we asked anyone in the program if they wanted to go, and of course, well, okay, I'll go. Well, not they would never been to anything like this. Never, none of them had ever been to a classical music concert for sure. But so we took them to pre-concert dinner, and then we took them to the concert. <clears throat> I know the maestro, so I worked out an arrangement for them to go backstage, meet him. He talked to them, and it was just. And and the comment at the end of the night, one of the young women said. I can't believe this. I'm a drug addict and I'm with all of these like normal people. And so there's so much that we can do over the course of one's experience and recovery to make it real. And, you know, the challenge is how do you pay for some of these things? I mean, you know, they're, they're just not in the sort of reimbursement stream. So you do a service, you get paid for it. But it's so reassuring and very... Um, invigorating to see individuals who live a life that's bathed in guilt and shame about their illness and the incredible pain of going through this constant everyday trying to find a way to get drugs and suddenly to see them coming to an event I mean, looking sharp and feeling like they belong there. It's it's very powerful. Now we have other things, you know, this mobile technology stuff. There's a GPS in this smartphone that you can load in high risk situations so that high risk places so that if you begin to come near a if you're starting to go to you know, like Mary's cocktail lounge or the shooting gallery that you used to go to the, the phone goes off. And, and it goes off with you and it also goes off with the counselor who is your particular coach. And so you might get a call saying, Mary, where are you right now? And if you say the library, we know that things are not going well today for you. So a lot of interesting tools and I think there are even more things coming down the pike that will, uh, that will be helpful. And God knows we need them because we've got a, a serious epidemic in this country.
2: So Ray, do you guys use opiate replacement therapy? Do you
3: use suboxone? We have some patients on suboxone, we, you know, which is the partial opioid agon, partial agonist. Which is, uh, we have maybe forty or fifty patients on suboxone. So we're not we're not exclusive and uh, Vivitrol, but uh, we prefer it. We we we're finding. That there are patients coming into our acute detox who are now wanting to be detoxed from Suboxone. They can't get off the medication. So I think there's a place for all of them. Um, and I think there are things coming down the pharmaceutical pipeline are probably going to make these two look pretty primitive in the, in the yeah. not too distant future.
2: We know, I thought you brought up a really good point. Historically, in our profession, treatment has been. You know, if you have an exacerbation of symptoms, you get put into a long-term treatment program or a 30-day treatment program, and um, certainly that's not the way other chronic illnesses are treated. And um, so many times a lot of our folks get institutionalized or the families begin to think, like, this person needs to go away, when in reality sometimes they just need more support in their environment. They don't need to necessarily Need intensive treatment. They just need more support in the, in the community.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. I think we have to sort of convince people. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, which is a little bit different, I mean, is that many of the particularly young, this young population, they're still connected to family. And I, I think probably more in the last two years than at any other time in my career, I've heard you know, accounts where, you know, a kid will be going to college, he's doing okay, you know, he's and he comes home for the holidays, and everybody's happy to see him. And then three days later, after a while, he's home, you know, his mother goes into his room to get something and comes across needles in his backpack and just completely freaks out, understandably, and calls a place like Gosnell or calls a treatment program and says, you you, you know, my son has got to get into treatment right away. He'd never been in treatment before. And there's just this tremendous fear. I mean, it's it's you know understood. And We have two overdose deaths every day, you know, from opiate uh, from opiate drugs in this state, and uh, people are frightened and they're scared. And they so they want their they want their loved one in rehab, whether it's a young person or a middle aged or an older. They want them in rehab. And I and and there's this sort of myth that if you go and you're someplace for two or three or four or five or six weeks, that you're going to come out and you're going to be fine. Well, you're going to be better, but you're not going to be fine. And so I think it's a matter of trying to match the treatment to the severity of the presenting need and the level of support that someone has on the outside because it's, it really is an entire kind of re, it really is rehabilitation. I mean, in every area of a life. And so one of the things that we've done in this young adult uh, program is that we've retained we're using a, um, a product called Recovery Track, which is a web-based product. All our coaches have laptops, and every two weeks, they sit with their particular cohort of, of patients and take them through a number of questions that we've worked out with this research institute, and they enter them into the computer. And so every, and then we're going to be able to see. We should be getting our first data sets in the next couple of weeks. We'll be able to see, really, how are these folks doing? Not just whether they're clean or sober, but also, you know, how are they doing in other areas of life? We have about 30 domains that we're measuring, and it's everything from, you know, have they been back to a hospital? Have they, have they, uh, been in an emergency room? Have they had any legal entanglements? Uh, how are their relationships? Have they been to their outpatient program? Have they, have they gone back to to their physician to get a physical? Have they been to a dental appointment? So we're looking for improvements in these areas, and I hope they're statistically significant improvements because it will make a difference.
2: Um, I think that uh, these are all amazing things, and. Yeah, we're just, I think, in, in the very beginning of looking at what technology can do to help support us. And we'll be right back after this commercial with um, more information from Ray.
4: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
0: step by step you made it through the journey of pregnancy now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey breastfeeding as a new parent you receive a lot of advice much of it conflicting some of it outdated Tune in to Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo. To bust through the myths about feeding your baby, Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
2: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Mr. Raymond Tomasi, who is the president and CEO of Gosnold, which is located on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And we're talking about extended care. And uh, for the last half hour, we've been talking about um, how technology is going to enhance and already is enhancing extended care at Gosnold. And, um, Ray, one of the things you did early on was integrate into primary um healthcare and maybe you could speak a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, that's an area that we have great interest in because you know, we 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 hear a, a good deal about the 25 million addicted individuals in the country only 10% actually get the treatment and those numbers are are you know, just dramatically embarrassing actually, but 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 there are another 50 or 60 million who are in a category that we might call harmful use, particularly of alcohol, which which, despite all of the things we've been talking about today regarding opiate medication and prescription pain addiction, pain med addiction, alcohol is still the most damaging and most widely used drug in the country and accounts for the, the most in cost to society with lost uh, wages, lost efficiency, and overall health care costs. So we we've, we've been particularly interested in finding ways that we can begin to identify earlier and intervene earlier because if you take the business of chronic illness and just continue to think along those lines, that what you're trying to do with other chronic conditions is be better at getting it further upstream before it becomes an acute problem that needs hospitalization. And so we saw the opportunity to begin to do that in the primary care physician's office because... That's where mainstream patients go, and that's an opportunity for us to bring some assistance, not just to the doc, but also to the conditions that he or she is treating, which in many cases have a behavioral health component to them. So we, again, did our usual thing. We wrote an R&D or research and development grant proposal. I took it to a couple of foundations, and I said, you know, we have this idea. We'd like you to help us test it. And they said yes, they bought the sales pitch, and we then had a couple of physicians practices that were interested in doing this, and so we're in three, uh, and we just signed up our fourth, our, our, our fourth and our first specialty practice. We're gonna be going into an OBGYN practice with 5,000 patients there, and what we're doing there is, is actually act, Integrating into the medical office team. So it takes a particular kind of, it's a clinical person that we put in the primary care office who works alongside of the physician, the NP, the administrative staff in that doctor's office to really provide brief interventions, uh, education. Uh, it's, it's not a setting where you'd go in and do a 45 minute counseling session. Uh, it's, it's much more it paced to primary care practice. And patients who, who can be remedied in that, in that, at that point are. And patients whose conditions are a little bit more severe would need to be referred out to a specialty behavioral health clinic. In most cases it's ours because our, our person's in the office can has easy access to all of our services. So it's very much like how a patient would might be seeing their primary care doc for a Cardiac disturbance, if you will, and at some point the doc might say, "You know this is getting a little beyond me i 'm going to I want you to to go to this cardiovascular specialist and so it 's the same kind of a thing, and we you know we 'll soon be doing universal screenings in these offices to try to identify folks even earlier, and in some cases it 's not about getting people to stop drinking it may be about getting them to modify their pattern of use because they haven 't reached a place where absence is absolutely required but in cases where it is then it is so it, it it it's it's very welcoming the docs are very welcoming with it what we have to work out is the business model that allows it to have financial sustainability down the down the road because the billing's for the billing for it is difficult now so we're we're doing that and we're doing it with community health centers also uh sitting in on a community health center medical home pilot that they're about to initiate. One of our folks is going to be a member of that medical home team. So it's all about learning how to operate in the new environment that's been created by the provisions of the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, for Massachusetts, we, we had Romney Care before the world had Obamacare. So we've been operating in that environment for some time. It's But it's important for the states that, that are going to be coming on board. You're going to see a lot more people who are enrolled in the Medicaid plan and a lot more opportunities to to be able to deliver services for people. In this state, 97% of the state is insured, but interestingly, of the 3% who aren't, about a quarter of them are individuals who suffer with substance use disorders or mental health conditions. Who can't get their themselves organized well enough to get the paperwork in their addresses changed the mail doesn't get to them and they get kicked off the rolls, so there's still going to be a need for what we call public health assistance for some of those patients, but uh, there are great opportunities and so we're moving in those areas we're looking we've done work in hospitals to help hospitals better manage alcohol withdrawal in hospitalized patients patients who are hospitalized for other conditions where their alcohol use goes unnoticed or unscreened and then they go into withdrawal after a surgical procedure and end up in the in the ICU for 10 days because the the withdrawal was mismanaged and we're, we've been doing some good work in the hospitals to do that, and we're seeing great reductions in length of stay, ICU transfers. I think it's incumbent upon all of us in this field to sort of get off what I call get off the sidelines of healthcare care and move into the mainstream and really demonstrate our relevance and our indispensability to any comprehensive integrated healthcare system. You know, Mary, behavioral health has always been viewed by the, the general – healthcare system as being a kind of a, sort of a necessary or unnecessary, I'm not sure I think it changes day to day it's never a profitable division for any hospital system the uh, patients are challenging, the staffs are poorly trained so to the degree that we can represent a legitimate service with qualified trained people and are making a difference in how overall care is delivered in a global payment system where where a health providers are going to have to take on risk, if you will, and be responsible for making sure that pe- people stay well, then there's certainly a clear role for us. After all, we've got, if you count the people that are addicted, the people who are abusers and the families of those people, you're talking about 50% of the American population that's affected by alcohol or, a drug, or drug abuse.
2: Well, you know I think you're absolutely right because so many times I hear people in our profession um, they're afraid of integration with either mental health or primary care, and you know there are when I worked in the operating room when I got out of nursing school. We used to be able to know whether somebody drank or not depending on the num- amount of sodium pentothal that it took to knock them out and they'd often yeah. be in for, for vagotomies or for gastric ulcers or for conditions related to alcohol abuse and it never really got addressed and mm-hmm. I think that people don't understand if you, if you consider nicotine and alcohol oh,
3: and of course,
2: everything yeah. else, the vast majority of chronic illness is related to Lifestyle into either tobacco or alcohol, and and I don't know why it's so hard for people to connect those dots and see that we do have a place and we can help drive down the cost of health health care.
3: Absolutely. I mean, when we we've been in the hospital now for a couple of years, 35 percent of the patients who we see in the hospital for the management or co-management because we work with the hospital staff. Of alcohol withdrawal, 35% of the patients we see are, have been admitted for a gastrointestinal disorder. They're not being right. admitted for alcohol abuse. They're be, they're being no. admitted for the consequences of long-term use. And you're absolutely right. right.
2: So you know, I guess as a profession, we've done a really poor job of advocating for ourselves and our skills. We're usually considered the stepchild of behavioral health because of the way we're trained and the way we're educated and they were credentialed and um, I think that you know it's always been an uphill fight
3: well we, and, I, and I think we have to share some of the burden I mean because I, you know I've been in this field long enough to know there was a time when we basically had a chip on our shoulder and we because of how many of the folks who were in the, who really were in the pioneering period of this of this field were folks that were recovering mostly alcohol dependent individuals and they had been so maltreated or mistreated or undertreated or untreated by the healthcare, uh, by physicians in the healthcare system that they were pretty much down on them. And so it was, the attitude was, we don't need, we don't need them. We'll build our own system. We'll take care of our people. And that's sort of what we've been doing for a long time. But that, that, that is now, we're way past that. And I think to hold on to that, to the vestiges of that, uh is really going to be detrimental to number 1 to programs who that take that position but also to the to the folks who are treating because we really need to be looking at this as a condition that's part of a person's life in connection to the rest of their lives you can't separate it out and i think you know what we're seeing in our in our special program for young folks is that we were really focused on making sure they got the treatment and we could get them to treatment we can get them to their counseling Staff, but at some point, one of them said, "Is this all there is?" And the and the reality is that that's not all there is to life. And so we've got to be a part of one's entire life, not simply the life that sees that they get to a meeting or get to a counseling session.
2: Well, and I think you know, recovery is more than just putting down the the alcohol or the drugs. That it's about quality of life, and it's about. Expanding who you are as a person and experiencing new things, and I think oftentimes we just think, well, if you're abstinent, then you're okay. When in reality, you can be very, you can have a very constricted life and and be abstinent.
3: Well, we saw uh, such a graphic demonstration of it. That I wish I had the little session, the backstage session that we had with the principal conductor of the symphony orchestra on the weekend. I wish I had that on video because it, it was, it was such a confirmation to me of how important it is to help patients like become part of a world that many of them once knew but have now become so alienated from because of, you know, you hate to use the word stigma, but I mean, you know, shame, guilt, stigma, all of the isolating features of addiction that separate people from the rest of the world, and how hard it is a uh, climb back to that. Not just about doing things, or but having the feeling that you belong in a place because you you've rejoined the human race. It's a staggering thing to overcome, and it's it's a great privilege to be part of some way to make it happen.
2: And we'll be right back after this commercial for our last segment with Ray.
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
6: you read about it in health news every day
3: cancer rates are going up obesity in the u.s is on the rise heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year
6: we can follow the advice of our doctor but cravings persist weight goes up and energy is still down It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with Lucy Hewitt and her guest experts. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: helping you make informed decisions for your life.
1: This is Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Mr. Ray Tomasi is our guest today. We're talking about um, extended care and primary care and integration into primary care. And we've been talking about a number of subjects. And when we were, during the break, we were saying, well, you know, what would we want to do with this segment? And I'd like to talk about families, but I was thinking as the music was going that um, this Veterans Day, are you seeing many veterans at Gosnell? Do you have any special experience with them?
3: We, we do see them. We don't have a, we, right now we don't have a special program or a a particular service that's targeted at veterans. You know, it's kind of integrated into all the rest of our, of our services. We have a couple of clinicians who are, not a couple, more than that. I mean, in our outpatient programs we have about 80 therapists. I mean, there are a number of them who are, who are particularly effective in working with uh, post-traumatic disorders and uh and so they're seeing some veterans and we're seeing we're seeing folks who are coming uh with uh, dependence on on uh, pain medication because they were treated for pain and i and on uh so that's a that and they still have pain so that i don't think we really come to the end of where that particular issue is going we can help folks get off of opiate medications and and many times their pain actually subsides some when they come off all those medications, but for folks who have legitimate pain, for veterans who fall into that category, I don't think we've really found an easy way to deal with that once we re- once we remove them from the from the opiate medications. So we're we're seeing veterans. Uh, we don't have a special program right now for them. We've worked with the the families of military uh folks uh, in the local area just sort of letting them know where services are and where they can go because um they also suffer particularly with active duty folks that have been deployed two three and four we have a fellow working for us now who was deployed four times to war theaters in the last seven years so it's uh Uh, I mean, I I can't even imagine that and what it's like for a family to to have to deal with that once and then twice and then three times and four times. Um, We we don't do enough. I I don't think we don't do enough, and I think in our industry we don't do enough either to to reach out to folks that have been affected uh, by things like that.
2: You know, uh, we, uh, we have a small staff at Westbridge and on uh, Veterans Day we usually do something to honor them and um you know, it's, people are like, well, why do you do this? I mean, and I think it's just so important because none of us would be here being able to do this if it weren't for our veterans and um they're underappreciated and they're overworked and, you know, I can remember during Vietnam and if somebody served two tours, That was considered like a lot, and now we have people that have been deployed four, five, six times. I know. I can't even imagine what that does to somebody.
3: It's actually a sad testimony to, to, I guess, everything, but to to have that many deployments is just uh, unconscionable, frankly.
2: Right, right. You know, I think that, um, you know, this whole behavioral health component to to uh healthcare is, you know, there, there's another component to this, and this is traumatic brain in, in, injury that we see in veterans, but we also see it in people that have, um, you know, had a, a few serious motor vehicle accidents or they've fallen down in their addiction and cracked their head a few times and you know, there's a whole component here where the brain is all of a sudden different and it's not reacting in to normal treatment the way somebody who doesn't have a traumatic brain injury has. And it's, and I think that we're just beginning to understand that too.
3: It's hard enough with, if you just factor TBI out and consider all of the, Sort of disregu- sort of cellular dysregulation that's going on in the brain because of the repeated use of addictive substances. And that, you know, that, I mean, what, you know, what we, certainly you know more about this than I do, but, well, you know, what we've learned in the last seven, eight to ten years from neuroimaging about, you know, those areas of the brain that are implicated in, in addiction and, and how, you know, how the changes in the brain dictate the presentation of the patient, I mean, it, it does help to, it, it does help families understand a little bit more about why seemingly entirely irrational behaviors begin to crop up and typify how a person goes through this illness because people can't understand it. And it's always been sort of like, well, they're doing it because, you know, they, they don't care. Uh, and it isn't really isn't that, and to be to be able to talk to them how how brain changes start to affect cognitive decisions or executive functions in the brain that are outside of a person's ability to simply control. Uh, I, I you know it, it adds to an understanding that this is a medical uh, condition and not simply a decision of someone's will to start becoming a, a totally irresponsible individual. Because no one wants to do this. No one ever right. starts out to say, I think what I want to be, let's see, I don't think I want to be a lawyer, but I think maybe I want to be, I think I want to become addicted to alcohol and just run around for the next 25 years feeding a habit that, that in, incredibly ruins my life and the lives of those around me. So I think understanding that, So we've been doing a lot more with family support groups, uh community forums. Uh, educational things to try to help people understand two things really number one this is an illness and we can describe it a little bit better today than we could 25 years ago and perhaps even more importantly it's treatable that there are things that can be done that there are interventions that can be applied that you don't have to wait until someone have you ever heard of any illness where the where the the treater says you really can't do anything until the person who has the condition makes the diagnosis that they have the condition. It's crazy. But that's what we've done in this field for, you know, we did anyway for a long time.
2: So well, yes, a lot of the places are the, still doing that. Ray, before we end up having to end for today, can you give people information that they want to learn more about Gosnell, or your programs, how did they find you?
3: Sure, the easiest thing to do in this day and age is to go to www.gosnold.org. Www.gosnold, There's a lot of information about our programs, our services, what we believe in, and a little, a brief video that'll tell you something about the, <clears throat> the history of the organization. We've been in uh, this uh, for f- over 40 years now and so we've learned a few things. And then we have, there are numbers for for folks who can call, who, are, who can talk to individuals who can help uh, not, maybe to come to one of our programs and maybe just to get information or learn more about uh, what uh, can be done. We have a, a, an intervention team that goes out, does interventions to help families with people are, they're concerned about. Lots of good things that we're doing, lots of good things that you're doing and many others are doing to to really bring this illness out into the light and to let people know that recovery is possible, it's reachable, and life can be different.
2: Thank you so much for spending this hour with us on Veterans Day.
3: Happy to be with you, Mary. Good talking to you. Thanks so much.
2: You're welcome. Have a great week, everyone.